15. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and the illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honour. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening. Um, as, uh, as Stephanie says, you could indeed preach for much, much longer and in more depth than I intend to do tonight on this passage. Ah, oh, indeed. Well, maybe another time. Okay. What's in a name? Who's heard of the Nobel Prize? I'd imagine pretty much everybody has. Whilst there are lots of prizes awarded by the Nobel Foundation, the most famous of them is, of course, the Nobel Peace Prize. <coughs> Do you know who created the Nobel Peace Prize? Anybody? Mr. Nobel. The inventor of dynamite. Seems an odd combination, doesn't it? Well, there's a reason why it's an odd combination. You see, he got the money from, as, as we've been told, inventing dynamite, discovering dynamite. Um, Albert Nobel could have been solely remembered for his intellect that led to the great discovery of dynamite. It's very useful for mining and other such things. Um, however, in 1888, when his brother Ludwig died, several newspapers published obituaries of Alfred by mistake. One of them in France said, 
Les marchands de la mort est mort. The merchant of death is dead. Horrified at this, he didn't want to be remembered that way. Alfred Noble created the foundation and the prize that bear his name. But even with great human achievements, people's lives, our names, last for but an instant in the timeline of life. And as the recent furor around statues has shown, it doesn't take much for names that were previously lauded to become embarrassing relics of the past. However, there is one name that has changed the world forever. There is one name that is above every other name, one name to which every knee will bow eventually, willingly or unwillingly, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Throughout tonight's passage, we'll see the impact and power of Jesus' name. But before we get into the passage, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'll be with us tonight as we study your word that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts will be acceptable to you, and that through this sermon and our actions, your name will be glorified in our lives and bring others to you. We ask this in the name that is above every name, your powerful name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So you should have your Bible open um, at page 1115. Um, I will be referring to it, so please do have it open at that page. Um, in verse 1... Uh, we see that Apollos' ministry has just been recounted in the end of chapter 18, just before, in verses 24 to 28. Uh, while Paul has been away from Ephesus, which he visited and sort of wet their appetite in verses 19 to 20 of chapter 18, um, Apollos has arrived. Now, Apollos, chapter 18, verse 24, was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scripture, the Torah. Verse 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Verse 25, again, he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately. Verse 26, he spoke boldly in the synagogue. And verse 26, again, he was prepared to learn and move for God. Hence, in verses 27 and 28, he becomes a great help and vigorously refutes the Jews when he's moved on, proving from the scriptures, the Torah, that Jesus was the Christ. So, back in our passage... Chapter 19, verse 1. Paul therefore finds some disciples. Yet, something doesn't seem quite right about them. So, Paul inquires, verse 2, if they received the Holy Spirit when they believed. No, they respond. We haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So, Paul asks what baptism they've received. And in verse 3, they respond, John's baptism. Now, we can see in chapter 18, verse 25, that Apollos had only known John's baptism. Yet even that doesn't explain their not knowing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, writing of John the Baptist in Matthew 3, if you want to turn to it, it's... Uh, page 900 and... Whoops. Uh, 967. Uh, verses uh, 7 and 8 and 11. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and with fire. 
And again, in John, uh, John 1, John 1 can be found on page 1,064. Um, verse 33, he says, And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So back in our uh, chapter in uh, page 1,115. John clearly knows the Holy Spirit. He's familiar with it before Jesus' baptism. And Apollos, we've been told, has been teaching accurately of Jesus, verse 25. Why then did they not know of the Holy Spirit? Well, first it seems clear that the little group at Ephesus, and Luke emphasizes that there were 12 in number in verse 7, were a relic of Apollos' immature ministry in the city. Even after his salutary meeting with Aquila and Priscilla, and his frank acceptance of the Pauline gospel, Apollos' message and personality had a distinctiveness uh, which tended to collect a personal following. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 to 6. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So he's left behind this sort of rump of ministry. Um, and whether through his uh, 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 lack of knowledge or through their sort of confusion uh, um, and personal following, they've not quite got a grasp of what's, what's being taught, even if they'd had John's baptism alone. Secondly, Luke is now concentrating on Paul's global ministry, as we'll see in verses 10 and 20. And it's Paul's vision of the gospel grace full and law light which has been successfully planted and grown within the gentile churches that had come not that the judaists faction which required circumcision for example luke is demonstrating how gladly a group abandoned an intermediary position when presented with a fuller gospel and so in verse 4 paul explains john baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. John's baptism is one of repentance, but it's not a Trinitarian baptism, as our Lord commanded in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Indeed, as Paul later writes to the Ephesians in chapter 4, there is one, one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul writes that to the Ephesians, where they've actually seen him baptize people who are already baptized. This isn't saying baptism can, is not once and for all. It's saying that they were not properly baptized the first time round. Verse 5, as a result, they are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And when Paul lays hands on them, they receive the Holy Spirit and prophesy, as the Lord has said, as said they will in Mark 16, verse 17, as a sign that the Holy Spirit has come upon them. Now, this scripture has been misused in a number of places to suggest there is a separation of the Holy Spirit and baptism, and that you receive one later than the other. That's not the case. If you are truly part of the Church of Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit 
at the same time. It is part of you. It is dwelling in you. But we don't have the signs and symbols that they had in those days in the same way. It's not what Paul's doing here. And he's at pains in 1 Corinthians, for example, to downplay the speaking in tongues. That's not the sign that you've received the Holy Spirit. That may be uh, uh, one of the outworkings for you, the receiving the Holy Spirit. But most Christians, godly Christians throughout the world, will never speak in tongues. Or if they do, they might be more translation rather than, um, rather than ones which we do not know. They have not been baptized before in Jesus' name. And their tongues and prophecy are signs and wonders in the same way that Paul's extraordinary miracles performed at verses 11 and 12, they symbolize an acceptance of the Gentiles into the church and that a change has been wrought. If you like, they're having their own mini Pentecost, or more accurately, they're being swept up into the existing Pentecost. And it's a sign that the Gentiles are part of that same church, part of that same following, part of the same uh, body of Christ. They have been accepted into the way of Christ. And so that is the baptized in Jesus' name, repenting and prophesying, baptized in Jesus' name. Verses 8 to 10, we move on to where they are boldly in Jesus' name, reasoning and persuading, boldly in Jesus' name, reasoning and persuading. In verses, uh, in verses 8 to 10, verse 8, Paul, first of all, enters the synagogue, and for three months he speaks boldly, persuading them about the kingdom of God and reasoning with them. But in verse 9, as becomes the pattern elsewhere when Paul speaks, some people start to speak against the way. Some people start to argue, become obstinate and stubborn, and they continue in their unbelief. Despite being presented with the Lord of the universe, they do not want to follow him. They do not want to know Jesus. They do not want to know the name or the power of Jesus. And so Paul withdraws from them and taking his disciples with them, he begins reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now there's a, there's a little footnote, it's not in the NIV, but it's in the ESV, which says that um, some manuscripts add from the fifth hour to the 10th, that is from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So those are the lecture times, if you want to go and hear Paul speak. He'll be in Ephesus for two years, three years, um, and uh, at Tyrannus' hall uh, from uh, 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., if you can get the time off work. Well, actually, that wasn't as difficult for them because they tended to work in the morning and in the evening. And um, like the Spanish siesta, they got a bit of rest time in between. And so Paul is taking up this rest time in the teaching. Of course, the very fact that Tyrannus' hall is available to rent at that point demonstrates the fact that it's not the time people would normally be gathering. He presumably used his hall in the morning and the evening to, to lecture uh, whatever it was he was lecturing on. Um, and the name Tyrannus, of course, means it's where we get the word tyrant from, which may be a reflection of how his pupils felt his teaching was. Who knows? At any rate, this continues on, verse 10, for two years. And this is the important bit. So, so... So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's the reason why Paul's doing this. That's the reason why he's teaching daily for five hours a day in the heat of the day when anybody sane is going inside and having their rest. Instead, 
He's hiring a hall and reasoning and persuading people for five hours a day. Why? So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. It's during this period that we see the initial establishment of the churches that you see in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven churches. They spread out from Ephesus. And whether Paul founds every church in Asia, whether Paul is, is involved in the, in the speaking of every church in Asia, is irrelevant. It's from this lecture hall and this five-hour-a-day um, uh, exposition of the word that, that it is moving out. Verse 10, that's the reason why he's doing all this. So that the word of the Lord spreads to both Jew and Greek. Boldly, boldly in Jesus' name, reasoning and persuading. And in verses 11 to 20, we find out it's because of Jesus' name. Recognition and prevailing. Because of Jesus' name, recognition and prevailing. In, um, in verses 11 to 12, we see this, um, this, this bit which probably feels a bit uncomfortable to us, if we're being honest about it. Um, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their illnesses were cured, and the evil, strain, uh, evil spirits left them. So if I have this little, uh, this little handkerchief, will, will that work if I take it away to somebody? Or, or maybe I can bless this and you'll take... No, it's not like that at all. Actually, it's quite the reverse. The handkerchiefs, um, it's, it, the, the word in, in Greek means more like sweat cloths. It's, um, it, and the aprons, it's not, it's not like he's doing a little bit of cooking and uh, he's got some flour on it and, you know, if you take that... No, this is his tent-making gear. This is what he's doing to support himself during the time when he's doing all this reasoning because elsewhere we hear that, that Paul is not fleeing a burden, that he is instead um, supporting himself and all the others with him in ministry. He's working late into the night and in the early morning, tent-making in order to support himself so that from the hours of 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., he can reason and persuade them in the lecture hall. And so whilst he's working, you know, it's heavy work, tarpaulins and leather and probably curing the leather as well and making the cloth and, and, and the ropes and everything into, into tents. And so he's got his apron on and there's the sweat cloths there to, to wipe the sweat away from him. And this city of Ephesus is, is so, so inured of magic, so inured of the dark arts and so inured of, of, of things like that 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 they've got this idea that if they, if they just take his sweat cloth, the sick will be healed. If they just can get his apron and get someone to touch his apron, the evil spirits will depart. Now, of course, we've seen that earlier on with Jesus, when the woman in the crowd comes forward and touches Jesus, and Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples are there saying, there's a crowd around you. They're all pressing in on every side. What do you mean, who touched you? No, no, somebody touched me. Power went out like he doesn't know who it is. No, in the same sort of way, he says to that woman, your faith has healed you. Her faith was, it, was that, that Jesus was capable of healing her simply by touching his robe. He didn't need to say anything. He didn't need to intend it. It would happen. That was what she believed. 
And it happens as she believes. And in the same way in Ephesus, in this city where we'll learn later on about, about how much the believers have, um, uh, have, have been inured of the dark arts, in this city of Ephesus, they believed that touching Paul's sweatcloth and touching Paul's apron would be enough to heal the sick. And so it was. But notice there's nothing else in the passage which says, and so, when in ministry, bless the cloth in this way, or such like. It doesn't say this is, this is to be commended. It was of, the, of its time. They believed that that's what would happen. And so, as part of the signs that, that was, were being worked, Luke even has this, 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 this use of the word extraordinary before miracles. It's not enough to say that Paul was performing miracles. These were not just miracles. These were, as far as Luke is concerned, extraordinary miracles. Surely the word miracles would normally have been sufficient on its own. No, these are extraordinary miracles. These are outside of the normal laws of nature. Verse 13, obviously this, is, this has been getting around a bit, and, uh, and the people, uh, these, these itinerant Jewish uh, uh, exorcists who've been operating, and, uh, you know, I mean, Judaism, it's got a bit of mysticism about it, hasn't it? So, you know, um, if, I, uh, if I come into your house, I can get rid of the evil spirit, they say to all these superstitious people. And so now they've found something that's, that's even more effective. It's not just mumbo-jumbo. They've seen demons cast out. They've seen people saved just by touching Paul's sweatcloth. Wow, this is, this is powerful stuff. Let's do it. So there they are. They're going around invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those who are demon-possessed. And they would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And there must have been some success for this to continue. Initially, at least, the, this, this builds up. And we hear elsewhere, we hear elsewhere that, um, that Jesus says, um, Uh, that Jesus says that there will be those who come to him um, at, the end of the, at the end of the age when he is the judge. And he says to them, I never knew you. He said, but Lord, Lord, we, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And he says, but you were never part of the kingdom. You never knew me. And so I never knew you. So it continues on. And in verse 14, we hear that uh, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And one day, it backfired, somewhat brutally. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about. But who are you? Who are you to be using the name of Jesus in this way? Because of Jesus' name. Because of Jesus' name and the way in which they're using it. Verse 16, Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Well, they won't be doing that again anytime soon, will they? Of course, if you, um, if you look back in Jesus' ministry, you see the, um, the man 
uh, whose name is Legion, uh, back in Mark. Um, and uh, uh, we're told that he, had, he was so restless, he could not be chained. He was so strong. And that's the sort of, that's the sort of image we've got of, of people who, who have that, uh, who, who, you know, we don't tend to think of demons these days. Um, we, we have a, a name for everything, and that, that makes it okay. Um, but there are obviously demons, or they wouldn't be there in the Bible. Um, but things are of the time as well. At any rate, in this case, the evil spirit knows Jesus. Knows Jesus, but doesn't know them. And Jesus doesn't know them because of Jesus' name. And then this becomes known in verse 17 to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus. And they're all seized with fear. Well, quite rightly, really. You know, seven strong young men have gone in and they've used the name of Jesus to cast out a spirit and the evil spirits instead cast them out because of Jesus' name. They're all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high, high honor. That's the result. Because of this, Jesus' name is held in high honor. And this then means that some of those who've become believers start to see things in a different way as well. It's not just a religion. It's a lifestyle. It's a relationship. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. Um, in, uh, in the ESV it says, Also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Verse 19, A number of those who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. So a drachma is a silver coin. Um, it was worth about a day's wages. Uh, to put that into context, uh, the average salary in the UK today is about 27,600, apparently. That's probably more than most of our salaries, but nonetheless, that's the average. Yeah, that's because we live in the north. Yes, yeah, because we live in the north, absolutely. Those southerners. I was born in the south. Oh, wait. <laughs> Um, so 27,600 is apparently the average UK salary. Um, if you work on the basis of there being roughly 250 working days in a year, um, that works out at 5.5 million pounds in today's money. 5.5 million pounds worth of scrolls that they burnt. Now notice though, they don't go and grab everybody else's scrolls. There's nothing in the passage that says, now, a number of them who had heard about neighbors who practiced sorcery brought their neighbors' scrolls together and burned them publicly. Or brought their neighbors together and burned them publicly. No. A number of those who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. This is about owning your own sin. This is about owning the sin that you're committing, that I'm committing, not the sin that they're committing. Now, perhaps the, the easiest illustration of that today would be pornography. Now, that's probably more of a problem for men than it is for women. 
but there's a statistic that says that three quarters of Christian men, men who go to church every Sunday, will have some addiction to pornography. That's quite a frightening statistic, really. And, you know, we're, it's, it, with, inter, with the internet, it's, it's readily available as well. What if we were all to, to bring our pornography, if there is any, and burn it publicly? But, of course, that would mean admitting to it. That would mean we'd have to say, I was doing this thing that wasn't healthy, and now, now because of Jesus' name, I wish not to. I want to be free of this. And if we calculated the value in this room alone, and I realize I'm mostly speaking to the men here, and I'm speaking to myself as well, what would the value of that be? What would we find in the few men in this room? But it's not just a problem for men, and there will be other things that are problems for women in just the same way. What would our equivalent of sorcery today be? What should we be destroying as a mark of our own sin? Acknowledging it and confessing it. Verse 20, though. So, it's not in the, um, in the NIV. In the, the NIV tends not to have the joining words. Okay, So, they're there in the scriptures and they, they are words that... that you know, and, but, so, okay? Uh, for reasons of stylism, um, the, stylistically, the NIV tries to avoid that sort of conjunction. But a lot of those words are quite important, and in the ESV, you have the word so at the beginning of verse 20 again, as we did at the beginning of verse, uh, sorry, halfway through verse 10. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. In the NIV, in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. It's as a result of all that's going on before, the conjunction there. You see what I mean? Because of Jesus' name, the word of the Lord spreads widely. Because of the believers acknowledging their guilt. I mean, what kind of spectacle does that make to the people around? 5.5 million pounds worth of uh, of material is destroyed publicly being burnt. Wow. You know, it, it's such a message that we've changed. It's such a message that we're no longer willing to do the things that we were doing. So, following on from where Paul's been, entering into the synagogue, boldly speaking there for three months, arguing persuasively and reasoning about the kingdom of God, about Jesus, moving into Tyrannus's lecture hall in order to continue five-hour lectures a day, sending people out into the surrounding areas, people coming in from the surrounding areas to hear this remarkable speaker. I mean, there's no other entertainment, so... Oh, wait. But still, Paul, free lectures every day? Must have been a draw to all, the, all around. So, that the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. That the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Why? Because of Jesus' name. Because there is power in the name of Jesus. Because it is the name that 
every knee will bow to, willingly or unwillingly. So how will we bow our knee to Jesus? How will we acknowledge our guilt? How will we acknowledge our sin? What will we do about it? How will we be different? In Acts 4, verse 12, it says, And there is no salvation in no one else. This is Peter speaking um, previously. For there is no other name under heaven given under, among men by which we must be saved. No other name. Jesus says, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. In what other way can we get to heaven? In what other way can we come to God? So then, as we go back out into the world in this next week, what is it that we're going to be doing differently? You and me. How will we rid ourselves of the sin that is inherent in us? I mean, Paul himself writes later on, uh, what a wretch I am. For the, sin, for the things I want to do, I do not do, but the things I do not want to do, I do. Paul is a wretch, how much more am I? But so that the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power because of Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that there is power in your name, power to drive out demons and power to, to baptize people such that they prophesy and speak in tongues, power to do enormous, incredible signs and power that is frightening when we understand its misuse. We thank you, Lord, that we can ask for things in your name. That we can, we can pray to you in your name. And that you say that you'll do the things that we ask if they're in line with your will. We thank you, Lord, for, for the opportunity to do that. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to make more of that opportunity, to speak to you more often. Pray also, Lord, that as we go back out into the world, that you'll enable us to to show forth that, that sort of repentance and to show that because of the name of Jesus, we are different. We are different from who we were before and we are different from the world around us. Give us the strength and the courage to boldly proclaim that even where we're unwelcome to do so. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.